Okay, well, last week we did the first part on work salvation, which was the third message in this doctrine of salvation, doctrine of soteriology, which comes from the Greek word soteria. And last week we went through Romans, a good chunk of Romans, from Romans chapter 2, verse 1, to the end of Romans 4. So we went through three chapters of Romans last week, just discussing what this, what is work salvation? You know, I gave you three things that people say work salvation is. So can you give me one of those, those you were, who were here last week? What's, thing I, what's one thing I said that people say work salvation is? Anybody? Okay. Okay. Yes, some people think salvation by works is you're, you're doing things to get saved, therefore that's work salvation. A Calvinist would say that if you do anything to be saved, that's work salvation because God does everything. You're required to do nothing. Okay, so a Calvinist would say, even if you say you have free will, then that's work salvation. If they would go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and say, well, the, 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 the uh, gift of salvation there is, is not, it's not grace, it's the faith. So God gives you the faith. God causes you to become born again first, and then you, he gives you the gift of repentance and the gift of faith, and then you're saved. Okay? That's one version of work salvation. Brother Tracy? Okay, well, that's not what, that's what we concluded work salvation was, but that's not one of the three things I said people say work salvation is. Oh, Mal, okay? okay? Yeah. Mal, okay? Okay, some people think going to church is salvation, but we're, listen, we're focused on the three things I said were work salvation from last week, okay? Jenna? Only faith is required for salvation. Yes, only faith is required for salvation. Some people will say, well, if you say anything besides faith is required for salvation, then you believe in work salvation. If you have to repent of sin, then that's work salvation, they would say. Uh, because only thing that's needed is faith. But the problem with that isn't turning from Lack of faith to faith, turning from at least one sin? And if that's true, then you are repenting of at least one sin. Okay, and they would have you believe that repentance only means uh, repenting of unbelief to belief, which is not true. Okay? Um, and then uh, there are many inversions. So you have the Calvinistic version of work salvation, what they think work salvation. You have the antinomian version of what work salvation is. That's usually the independent Baptist uh, then you have the Arminian version of what they think works salvation is, which uh, if you say that sin causes you to lose your salvation, then that's work salvation. Only a lack of faith or turning from uh, trusting in Christ to not trusting in Christ can cause you to lose your salvation. And so last week we saw through our study through Romans and through giving you the framework of what Paul is dealing with here, the situation he's dealing with in Acts 15, we saw that work salvation according to Paul is keeping the law of Moses to be justified. Now, there is freedom. If someone wants to keep the law of Moses, and they're not saying it's salvational, they have the freedom to do that. They have the freedom to keep all the festivals. They have the freedom to not eat pork, to not eat shellfish. They have the freedom to not wear clothing that's wool and linen mixed together. Okay, uh, They have the freedom to do these things, uh, they have the freedom to get circumcised or have their children circumcised. They have the freedom to do these things. But if they can, they decide that it's salvational, that's where the problem comes in. Okay? And so we went through Romans last week, and now we're going to continue this week and go through Galatians. 
Okay? And you see I have a sheet before you. And as I went through this, I was astounded about all the things the Apostle Paul said about these people who were uh, preaching this other gospel, who were saying uh, what he's saying about those who preach it or those who obey that gospel. So we have 20 things here, and when I see this, we go through. Uh, so let's start in Galatians chapter 1. And let's see, we're just going to be like a drive-through Galatians this morning. Okay, We're not going to go real, real in-depth on a lot of this, but it's going to be a drive-through Galatians, because unfortunately, since the time of Martin Luther, he's the one that began this kind of interpretation of Galatians, the idea about Galatians has been this, that if you say you must obey to be saved, or you say a lack of obedience caused you to lose your salvation, then you're the one Paul is preaching against in Galatians. So as we're reading through Galatians, I want you to listen for that and see and see if you hear that or you read that, that that's what Paul is preaching against. Or do you see rather that what Paul is preaching against is the very thing I talked about last week, which is saying you must keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Okay? Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So let's stop right there for a second. What Paul is going to attempt to do in this first chapter, and even in the beginning of chapter 2, is prove his apostleship. Okay, Because these people who are coming behind him, which we saw in Acts 15, who are saying something completely different than what he said, they're basically accusing him of not being a true apostle. Because if you, if you were sent out by Jesus... To preach to the Gentiles, surely you're going to have the right message. And so he's it, this first chapter and, and maybe a half, he's going to try to attempt to approve his apostleship. And in doing so, he's attempting to approve his message is true. Because these people in Galatia are having the same problem that people in Antioch did. Remember in Acts 15, the church that sent Paul and Barnabas to the elders in Jerusalem was the church in Antioch. Okay, Paul and Barnabas didn't say they wanted to go. They had nothing to prove. The, the, the Judaizers who were coming there, these brethren who came from James, who were causing these problems, they couldn't make them go, but the church sent them to go. Okay, and that's the church in Antioch. And if you were to look at your map in the back of your Bible, you'd see a difference between Antioch and Galatia. It's probably one of your last maps that may give the missionary journeys of Paul. And you see uh, where Jerusalem is. You'll see on the right-hand side of your map where Syria is, and right there, just above, probably above Syria, you see the, the word Antioch. That was basically Paul's home church, I guess you could say. It's where he would start and end almost all of his missionary journeys. But you look up to the northwest of that, you see Galatia's a region, okay, where maybe Paul wrote to Ephesus sometimes, which was a city, or the Thessalonica sometimes was a city. Now he's writing to a whole region of churches, so this problem spread from Antioch, where it originally was, which is what Acts 15 was dealing with, up to Galatia now. Okay? So he's having the same problem again, but now he's having this problem in Galatia. So this problem is widespread. Okay? Let's continue reading verse 1. Who raised him from the dead, God the Father raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you, and peace from God the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Let's stop right there. Here's the first hint we have. That the message Paul is going to preach against is not the message of being, de of being delivered from evil. 
Because what is one of the whole points of the God, of, of Christ dying on the cross or giving himself for our sins? That he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, through whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel, he's surprised, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. There are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For now do I persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. He has some really strong words here. Okay, The first one you're going to have on your sheet here, you see in verse 6, it turns people away from Jesus. This gospel that's being preached, this other gospel that those who are, even the people in Galatia are considering obeying, it turns people away from him. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him. It turns them away from Jesus. The second one you're going to have there on your sheet, it's a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's just in verse 6, to a different gospel, which is not another but there are some. So it's a different gospel. Number three, it's not the grace of God. So you're going to see that the Apostle Paul is going to contrast this gospel, which turns away from Christ, and is a different gospel, which is really not a gospel at all. It's really not good news. And it turns them away from the grace of Christ. So you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. So your first one is turning away from Jesus. The second one is it's a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. And number three, it's not the grace of God. Let's stop right there. Now we know from that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he writes as the, the oracles of God, the words of God. And we know in Titus 2, 11 and 12 that he defines the grace of God for us. And in this gospel that Paul is talking about here is, you have to obey to be saved, then what do we do with Titus 2, 11 and 12? It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So Paul's got a, we've got a problem with Paul's own writings, if that's what he's saying here in Galatians, when Titus says the exact opposite. But if we... Oh, I'm sorry, verse 7. Which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Number four on your list, people who are preaching it are troubling those who hear it. They are troubling those who hear it. And number five, it's perverted. This gospel of Christ is perverted. Now, if this gospel that Paul is talking about is a gospel of holiness and obedience, how could that be perverted? Perversion is something that you're not supposed to be doing. It's the opposite of the the truth. But we know that, that those who all be like sheep have gone astray. That's what we know. And so going astray is, is, is being opposite of what you should be, according to Isaiah 53.6. And so that couldn't be that gospel we're talking about here. 
But isn't it amazing that some people will twist these words and they'll have you believe that the perverted gospel is talking about here that is troubling people. And there's a different gospel and it turns you away from Jesus is the gospel of obedience. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it twisted to even say that? I thought that turning towards Jesus and following Jesus meant you were obeying Jesus. There's some more strong words here. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The Greek word there is anathema. He's cut off. You know, Paul said in Romans 9, I wish for my sake of my countrymen that I was accursed and cut off from Christ. Same word used there, anathema. These people who are preaching this gospel are anathema to Paul and anathema to God. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. And that's number six in your list. People preaching it are accursed. Paul uses his word in another example in 1 Corinthians 16.22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Now, how do we know if we love Jesus or not? We're obeying him. him. So if you don't love him, you're accursed. And love means obedience. Then I would say what Paul is talking about here, who is accursed, is not a gospel of obedience. It's a different gospel. Something completely different than that. Verse 10. For now, do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Number seven on your list is it pleases men, not God. So we have in these five verses here the first seven things of your 20. I mean, Paul gives a really good introduction here to explain to them how, how detestable this gospel is to him. Verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men. So he's continuing to prove his apostleship, that the message he received was not from man. Okay? Not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So who is he claiming this message is from? Jesus, from God. Not from man. He didn't get it from another man. He didn't consult another man. He's going to talk about that here in a second. We've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, and Judaism is simply the Jewish religion before Christ came. Okay? There's many people still practicing Judaism this day, these days, the Orthodox Jews. How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers, which is Judaism. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. So when Paul was called by God, okay, and uh, Christ was revealed in him, he, he saw us into Damascus Road, he became a Christian, um, and he was revealed to him that he might preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That was the main people group he was going to go to. He did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. He did not seek advice from other apostles immediately, or from other people. 
he sought it from Jesus Christ. Okay? Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, verse 17, to those who are apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So he went to Arabia, and tradition says, and we don't really have the details to fill this in, but he went into the desert for quite some time to just spend time alone with God, to be separated from everybody else. And it would make sense if we did that, because how many years did the apostles have with Jesus? They had about three years. They had about three years of Jesus. And we see here in verse 18 that after three years, now that's including going back to Damascus, but there's a three-year total now from the day he was converted, from the time he was converted, so after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles, James the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things that I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. So he's saying, listen, I didn't get this from anybody else. I'm not lying to you. I got this from God. And after three years, I only saw Peter for 15 days, and then I saw James, who was the writer of James, the Lord's brother, who was also the bishop or the leader of Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. If you want to find out more about why he went there, you can read Acts 11, 27 through 30. If you want to read about the first time Peter, uh, that Paul went there after three years, it was for Barnabas and him to bring an offering to the church in Jerusalem. So he's not lying. He's still proving his apostles. Listen, I didn't get the message from Peter. I didn't get it from any apostles in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. In fact, after three years, I only saw Peter 15 days. That's it. Verse 21. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God in me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also with Titus with me. Now this is the Acts 15 right here. So we have a total of 17 years now. Three years the first time. And after 14 more years, now we have 17 years. So he's about... The same age in the faith that I am. I'm about 16 and a half years in the faith right now. He's going up to Jerusalem to deal with this issue that the Antioch church sent him there to deal with. And he's bringing Barnabas with him. Now the Acts 15 discourse doesn't say this, but he had Titus with him as well. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Now when he's saying lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. He's not questioning his message, whether his message was biblical or not. What he's questioning is, what is the church in Antioch going to do if the people here disagree with me? Because he's already telling you, he knows his message is from Jesus. He didn't hear Jesus wrong. He knows he's had the right message all these 17 years. So he's questioning whether he'd run in vain because all this work he'd done so far amongst the Gentiles preaching this gospel to them might be destroyed by this one sweeping council that might disagree with him. Okay? So we see he's the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's talking about the gospel he preached among the Gentiles. And he says, Titus, who is a Gentile, verse 3, not even Titus, who is with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So this, why is Paul bringing this up? If what he's coming against here is obedience to God, why bring up circumcision all of a sudden? Why even mention it? Why mention this gospel he's preaching to the Gentiles? And why mention Titus, this Gentile who came with him, was not compelled to be circumcised? Well, because it's what it has to do with what I talked about last week. That the message he's, he's coming against is this obedience to the law of Moses, which is what you see in Acts 15, which is the whole council he's talking about here, 
in Galatians chapter 2. So he wasn't, so Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren. Point number eight. The people who preach this message are false brethren. You know, and going through Galatians this morning, we have a double effect. One, you're going to realize what work salvation is. You're going to realize it has nothing to do with obedience to God's moral law. Nothing to do with that. That is required of you. And two, you're going to learn that there's people in Christendom today who are calling themselves Christians and are trying to provoke people to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And if you don't do it, you're not obeying Jesus. So that's the double effect it's going to have. It's going to help you understand what works salvation has nothing to do with obeying God, uh, the moral law of God. And number two, you're going to find out the people who are doing these very things still today, they're still around. They, they are these, they are these 20 things we're going to talk about today. They are false brethren. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus. And they might bring us into bondage. Number nine. The people who preach this are spying out your liberty. That they might bring you into bondage. Now, the person who says that uh, obedience isn't required for salvation said, Look, anytime you tell me to obey God, you're spying out my liberty and bringing me back into bondage. What a bunch of nonsense. What did Jesus say about those who commit sin? They're slaves to sin, they're the ones who are in bondage. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 6.16, Do you not know to whomever you present yourself slave to obey, or that one slave to whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? So the number nine is they spy out our liberty to bring us into bondage. So the reason why they had to deal with this issue, and the reason why he said that Titus was not compelled, even though he was a Gentile, to be circumcised, was because these false brethren were trying to compel him to do that. But he wasn't submitting to it. Verse 5. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. You see, by, by doing, by submitting to that, not be, because Titus has the freedom to get circumcised if he wants to. If it's for the right reasons. We see other times that, uh, in the book of Acts that Paul had Timothy circumcised. But it wasn't for his salvation. He had the liberty to get circumcised if he wanted to. But you also had the liberty not to be circumcised if you don't want to. You also have the liberty not to obey the law of Moses if you want to. So they didn't yield submission to it, not even for an hour, not only for Titus's sake, or for Paul's sake, but for the Galatians' sake, that the truth of the gospel might continue with them, that they would no longer be deceived, that these men are... Because they gave into it, what would happen? Everything Paul did would implode. If he gave into it even for an hour, all the work Paul did in the first 17 years and Barnabas did along with him would just fall apart. All the churches would ask Paul, what was this message you were preaching this last 17 years? That we didn't have to be circumcised. That we didn't have to keep the law, but now you're, now you're doing it and as if we have to? It'd be hypocrisy on Paul's part, wouldn't it? Verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, and, and here I think he's talking about these Judaizers, as we call them, or those who were trying to get them to keep the law of Moses. But those, from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. 
For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. So nothing was, when Paul got done with this whole conference in Acts 15, nothing was added to his message. Nothing was added to his gospel. No knowledge about Jesus Christ and what he was supposed to preach was added to him. No correction was given to him. In fact, according to Acts 15, all the leaders agreed with him. Completely. And gave him the right hand of fellowship and said, you go to Gentiles, we'll go to the circumcision. They added nothing to me. Verse 7 of chapter 2. But on the contrary, when they saw the gospel of the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised, the Jews, was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostle of the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing that I was also eager to do. So it doesn't mean that Paul can't preach the Jews. Doesn't mean that Peter and them couldn't preach the Gentiles. It meant that their ministry as a whole would be to the Gentiles. And we see throughout the book of Acts that every time Paul went to the city, what's the first thing he did? Went to a synagogue. Tried to reason with the Jews. They rejected him. He said, my hands are free from your blood. I now go to the Gentiles. And they received salvation. Verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I would stood him to his face. Now this is going to be after the Acts 15 council. Keep in mind. After the Acts 15 council. Now, Peter had come to Antioch and stood him to his face because he was to be blamed. See, Paul is so serious about this gospel he's coming against. He's willing to confront Peter, who's basically one of the head of the original apostles, in public, in front of everybody. Because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, that's the same thing it says in Acts 15. Certain brethren were sent from James, who gave a message that James didn't tell them to bring. Before certain people, men came from James, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Go to Acts 11. And let's look at what the response of was the Jews when Peter went to Cornelius' house and came back. I want you to see the similarities here. Acts chapter 11. Starting in verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now do you think Peter is having some of the same issues here in Galatians? Because he was eating with them. And then men from brethren came, who were from Judea, and what did he do? He departed from the Gentiles, wasn't eating their food anymore, and he went to eat with the Jews. Because the Gentiles were not circumcised. But Peter explained it to them, in order from the beginning. And he explains the whole thing to them, in verse 9 it says, when he's talking about his vision, But a voice answered me again from heaven, saying, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Obviously, in that dream that Peter has, he was not, God was not talking about food. God was talking about people. Because right after this thing happened, he said, now this was done three times. And all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Now listen to what he says. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Who told Peter to go? 
So if these men are going to question what Peter's doing here, who are they questioning then? The Holy Spirit. And so they went to the house, and then we uh, see in verse 17, he's giving the account of what happened to Cornelius. I said, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, talking about the Holy Spirit, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Withstand God. But now we have Peter. I mean, this, this goes to show you, friends, that even the holiest of the holy have temptations and can fall can have temptations and sin. That's why you need to beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the will of God. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to be aware of that. So the, the Apostle Peter is making the mistake again. He's sinning again. So when the, when the brethren came, he drew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas, who came in Acts 15 with Paul to deal with this issue, even Barnabas now is playing the hypocrite and was carried away by his hypocrisy. So we have this Jew and Gentile issue talked about over and over again here in Galatians. When I saw they were not straightforward about the truth, the truth of the gospel. He's accusing Peter and Barnabas and all the Jews who went aside to the Jews who just came to the, the fellowship of not being truthful, not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So, Peter's amongst the Gentiles. He's not telling them to be circumcised. He's not telling them what they need to eat. And he's doing this all with them, having fellowship with them. Then the Jews come from James, and he draws aside and acts as if they need to be circumcised, and need to stop eating what they're eating and eat what we're eating. He says, if you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile, why are you now compelling Gentiles to live as Jews? And he goes on to say that they should already know as Jews. We, Verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles... Knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law. Now, what which law is that? The law of Moses. But by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. They might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, if you isolate verses 14 through verse 16, you might come away thinking, well, these guys came from James saying you have to start obeying God or you can't be saved. And Peter was saying it too. And Barnabas was even being a hypocrite. What's wrong with being a hypocrite if you don't have to obey anyway? Being a hypocrite and saying you must obey. And me, Paul, the only guy in the, in the midst of them was saying, listen, you don't have to obey God to be saved. You just have to believe. Is that really what's going on here? Let's read on. Verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, this is very crucial here that you, you listen to this, this verse. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found, also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things that I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So Paul's making a distinction here. A couple of verses ago, he's talking about we don't have to obey the works of the law. And now he's saying, if you, 
If you are found sinners while you're seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ going to be a minister of sin? Of course not. But he says here in a, few, in a second here, he's going to say that Christ lives in me. It's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. If Christ is living in you and you're sinning, then Christ would be a minister of sin. But Christ's not going to live in a, a defiled temple. He's not going to live in a sinful temple. For if I build again those things that I destroy, I make myself a transgressor. What did he destroy? The sin. He destroyed sin. And how did he destroy sin? The repentance. He repented of it. He gave it up. Including this idea that you must obey the works of, of the law of Moses in order to be saved. He gave it up. You can read about that in Philippians chapter 3. Um, verse 19. For I, through the law, died to the law, the law of Moses, that I might live to God. I had been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Number 10 on your list. This gospel that Paul has come against sets aside the grace of God. It sets aside the grace of God. Number 11 on your list. If the gospel of obeying the law of Moses to be justified is true, then Christ died in vain. Christ died in vain. Uh, number 11 is, if this gospel that's being preached, that you must obey the law of Moses is true, then Christ died in vain. Last four words of verse 21. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So if you give yourself over to this gospel, to even ponder on it and think if it's true, and consider it being true, you are foolish and you're bewitched. You're foolish and you're bewitched. And the word bewitched here is baskino. It means to exert an evil influence. To exert an evil influence. So someone's exerting an evil influence on them. They're being bewitched. If someone's trying to convince you that this gospel is true, they're exerting not a good influence, but an evil influence upon you. But if this gospel they're trying to prove to them is the gospel of obedience, how can that be an evil influence? How can that be a bewitching? How can it be foolish, ever be foolish to obey God? So, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So, he's asking, listen, when did you receive the Spirit of God? Which, of course, he goes back and says, you look in uh, Peter's discourse about this, Acts 15 about this, the sign they knew that God gave approval and was accepting the Gentiles was what? The Spirit of God came upon them. And he's asking them, when did you receive the Spirit of God? When you believed the gospel by faith? Or when you started obeying the law of Moses? Was it when you got circumcised? Or was it when you had faith? 
Now, of course, very good, Solomon. We're not, we're, the Apostle Paul never so far, and never in any of his epistles, I'm, I'm asserting to you, never separates faith and obedience. As long as we're talking about obedience to the moral law of God. Okay? Which he's clarified already once. Verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, that's when they initially got saved, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now, what does that mean, being made perfect by the flesh? In other words, there's something... Go ahead, bro, John. Yes. It's something that they hadn't... They weren't complete yet. They needed to do something else in order to be made perfect, made complete. They were missing something. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? I wonder who they're... I wonder who Paul's talking about them suffering from. Suffering from those who are of the circumcision. And we'll see more about that here in a minute. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? We'll go read Acts 15, 12, where Paul and Barnabas talk about all the miracles done among them. Nothing to do with the works of the law. Or by the hearing of faith. Just as Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And why, why is it important, we looked at this in Romans last week, why is it important to realize that it's not the law, but it's of faith? What came first? The faith. Did the promise to Abraham come first, or the law of Moses come first? The promise of Abraham. Was there a law around before the law of Moses that was requiring you, that God required you to obey? Of course there was. How can he call anyone sinners? Well, how did he call, how did he say about all the people who died in the flood, that every intent of the thought of their heart was only evil continually. How did he accuse Cain of murder when he killed his brother? Well, how did Cain know that? He knew it intrinsically, because we saw last week in Romans 2, that the Gentiles have a law written upon their hearts, their conscience bears witness to it, either accuses them or excuses them. So we know that, that the, the law that he's coming against here, because he's trying to show you that Abraham was prior to Moses, and you'll see that here in the upcoming verses. Abraham was prior or before Moses, but even before Abraham, there was a law to obey. Just because God didn't have Moses write it down, or God didn't write it down on two tablets to give them Moses, does not mean there was not a law that God expected people to obey. If there was no law, he couldn't call anyone a sinner. Verse 7, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. So this is a part of Paul's gospel here, saying, and you all the nations shall be blessed. So those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now why is he saying all nations? Because people are trying to exclude the Gentiles and say it's only the Jews who are blessed. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law, law of Moses, are under the curse, for it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So if you're going to say you must be circumcised to be saved, what else must you do? You have to obey all the law of Moses. You can't pick and choose which part you're going to obey and which part you're not. You have to obey all of it. But they're not doing that. So curse is everyone who does not continue all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So he's he's putting these two things opposite. Not faith and obedience, 
Not faith in holiness, but faith and obedience to the law of Moses. Those things are opposite in Paul's eyes. Okay? So no one is justified by the law, but by faith. If the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So if you're going to do that, you're throwing faith aside, and now you're clinging to the law for your salvation. But Christ, this is why he said at the uh, beginning of chapter 3 that Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Now we talked about that some more in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, Jesus was born under the law. He was a Jew. Did he ever break one of the laws of Moses? No. So he completely fulfilled it. He's the only one who has. And then he was cursed for us, not by hanging on a tree as the Jehovah's Witness will have you say, that his hands were above his head and he was actually literally on a tree. We looked at this before we looked at the atonement, that the person who was on a tree was cursed as the death penalty upon him. And that's what the comparison is here. The death penalty was on Christ, even though he did not deserve it. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Oh, verse 14, I'm sorry. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 15, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. There is only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one knows it or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed. Now he's going to show them that the seed here is not them, the Jews. It's singular. It's talking about Jesus Christ. So all this time he's trying to say, listen, you're not special because you're a Jew and you have the law. God wants all, everybody to be saved. He even preached the gospel to Abraham before Moses even came. And he wants all nations to be blessed. He wants all to be saved through faith. Now verse 16, not to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, the law. Which law is that? Which law is this? The law of Moses. The law, which is 430 years later. Once again, was there a law before Moses? Was there a law before Abraham? So the law he's been talking about, all law, now we're getting confirmation. Very clear here which law he's talking about. And this I say, the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul, cannot make void, the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. The promise given to Abraham. For if the inheritance, if you want to be an heir, if it's of the law, having the law of Moses, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. It would make the promise void of no effect because the promise was made to all nations. But who was the law of Moses given to? The Jews. So God gave it to Abraham by promise. Verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? So he's going to say, listen, this is, I'm going to tell you what the law is for. It's not for salvation. It was added because of transgressions until or till the seed should come. So when Christ comes, what happens to the law? It's done away with. It's put aside. It becomes obsolete. It is finished. To whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through the, through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not mediated for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promise of God? 
Certainly not. For there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, not just Gentiles, but Jews as well, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, and who is that referring to? The seed, who is Jesus. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. You know, we have, most of us here have children, okay? And some of us are working on it. Uh, but you don't leave your children to themselves. At least not until they get a little older, right? You have them under guard. Whether it's the husband or the wife, the mother or father, or whether it's a babysitter, or maybe it's the grandparents, you have them under guard for a period of time. And so, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law confined all under sin, and it was to bring us to Christ. Now the word tutor there, I don't think it's the best word to translate this Greek word as, okay? The word tutor there doesn't mean like someone who just tutors you in math. When I think tutor, I think, well, I, I don't, I, you know, maybe a child's not doing very good in a certain subject, and so therefore you bring a math tutor in or English tutor, and they, they teach them on that one subject. That's what I think when I think tutor, okay? But this word means like a guardian, okay? Someone who's, uh, who's watching over the person. Someone who's almost like a, like the King James says, a schoolmaster. It's someone who's with them all day and everything. Probably because the parents are off working or doing whatever they have to do. It'd be more like a nanny, I guess you could say. Okay? And so, the, the law was a tutor, but only to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. We're not to remain under a nanny all our lives. We're not to remain under a guardian. We're to grow up. And that's what he's saying here. But after faith has come, verse 25, we are no longer under a tutor. No longer. So when faith has come, we're no longer required to keep the law of Moses. Which is the tutor he's talking about here. The law he's talking about that came 430 years later. The one he's talking about as a tutor here, we're no longer under anymore when faith has come. For you are all Jews and Gentiles alike, sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now people, this is a sidebar here, people will say, well, that, look, there's proof right there, women can be pastors. What a bunch of nonsense. Is that really what he's, is he even talking about that here? Not even the subject. This is a contract, what Paul says in other places in the first Timothy. Okay? It's a little sidebar. But it's neither Jew nor Greek. Everybody, slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female, all has the opportunity to be saved by faith through Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, singular, and heirs according to the promise, not according to the law. So by being Abraham's physical descendant, does that mean you're an heir? By being Abraham's physical descendant, does that mean you're his seed? Because who's his seed? Christ is his seed. And you must be in Christ to be born of the seed. Be part of that seed, that seeds. And that makes you the heir, according to promise, not according to law. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, is not different at all from a slave. So you have a child who's growing up. Let's just picture a, uh, 
a big farm, okay? And uh, the child is growing up. He's not working on the farm yet. He's too young for that. Maybe he's about Elijah's age, about four years old, okay? And uh, But there's lots of people who are working for mom and dad on this farm. And now the son eventually will become heir of that whole farm. But as long as he's a child, he's treated just like a servant. He has no inheritance yet because he hasn't grown up. He hasn't learned how the business works yet. So that's what Paul's about to explain here. Now, I said the heir, that's the child, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. He's under a guardians and stewards until a time appointed by the father. What's the guardian and steward there? The law. That's right. It's the guardian and steward watching over the children of God, who are the people of Israel, until the time appointed by the Father. And we know in Romans 5, 6, 3, that, that, that Jesus came at just the right time. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't a mistake that Christ came at the time he did. And so, at the right time, appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, Born of a woman, born under the law, a Jew, to redeem those who are under the law, Jews, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So Paul's talking about himself, who is a Jew himself, that he might receive the adoption of sons. So he would no longer be under bondage. Okay? Which you see, point number nine that I gave you on your sheet is a spy out liberty to bring into bondage. But Paul's saying here that we, that Jews would no longer be under bondage. They might receive adoption of sons. And because you, Gentiles, are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And that's one of the, the assurances you have, that you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit will cry out within you, Abba, Father. I had someone ask me recently, is there a difference between the Holy Spirit and your conscience? Of course there is. My conscience has never told me, Abba, Father. But the Holy Spirit has. And that's how I know I'm a child of God. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir of God through Christ. So in this, and in Galatians 4, 1 through 7, what we have here is that the child, who is no different than a slave, the child is the Jewish person. The slave is a Gentile. And there's no difference. There's no difference until the child grows up and is no longer under guardians and stewards, is no longer in bondage, and the fullness of time comes, and God sent forth his son, that they might redeem those under the law. But also he redeems those who were the slaves. Therefore you are no longer a slave, I'm a Gentiles here, but a son. And if a son, an heir of God through Christ. So these children who were Jews, who grew up under the guardians, under the stewards, they never grew up. They stayed under there. These ones who want to keep the law, but they're staying under there. But the slaves, who, are, who weren't sons at first, they've grown up and now they're heirs. So the original people who God sent the law to, who were the original people he wanted to be heirs, they're rejecting their inheritance. They're choosing to stay immature under the guardian and the steward, under the tutor of the law, instead of growing up to the faith of Christ. But now the servants who are working on, the, on that uh, farm, they're getting an inheritance with that father. What a sad state. What a sad state. Verse 8. And I believe this verses 8 through 11 is talking about Gentiles here. But then indeed, when you do not know God, you serve those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, 
How is it then that you return, you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. So they, they had the faith in Christ. They received the Holy Spirit through faith. They saw miracles by faith. But now these people who are still under the gardens and stewards are trying to bring them back from being an heir now. They had transferred from being slaves to an heir to going back to being a servant or a slave again. He said, I, I marvel at it. I can't believe you want to go back to that. Verse 12. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel or messenger of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? Before I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So in verses 12 through 16, this is sidebar, really isn't talking about where the main overall message here, but He's saying the whole reason he first came because he had a problem, a physical problem, an infirmity. And I would assume, because he says that you have plucked out your eyes and given to me, that he had a problem with his eyes. Okay, he had a problem with his eyes. And that's the thorn in the flesh we see, I think, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, I believe. Verse 17. They, who's the they here? They zealously court you. Those are the Jews who are coming behind Paul and saying, you must be circumcised to be saved. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you. That you may be zealous from. So, so they come along and says, you know what? You're not saved. You need to be circumcised to be saved. They just excluded them out of salvation. And they're doing it zealously. Why? So they might, uh, be, that they might be zealous for them as well. They may be zealous for that, that false, that false thing that you must be circumcised to be saved. But it's good to be zealous in good things, and, and a good thing always. And not only when I am present with you. My little children, whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one of a bond woman and the other of a free woman. So you're going to take the situation with Abraham. We had Hagar and Sarah. And, of course, you all know the story of what ha- or the, the account of what happened there. That God said to Abraham, you're going to have a child through Sarah. And he promises to him, even though they were both old. And did Sarah and Abraham continue to believe God for that? At one point in time, they backslid. So you know what? Sarah said, here, here, Abraham, have Hagar. Let's see if we can fulfill God's promise a different way. And we know what happened from that. So he's going to give, take that story and give an allegory and say, listen, the people who are trying to get you to obey the law of Moses that was found on Mount Sinai, they're the children of Hagar. They, they are just like Ishmael. But those who are from Jerusalem who's above, they are those who are the children of the promise who waited for the true child of the promise to come. He was Isaac. Okay? That's what, that's going to be the overview here. So tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, the one of a bondwoman and the other of a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was according to the flesh. So they went outside of God's will. It was natural procreation, and it wasn't God's will. And he was of the free woman through promise, which is supernatural, because we know they knew at that point in time they were too old to have children, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which was the law of Moses, which gives birth to bondage. 
which is Hagar. For this Hagar in Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with their children. So people at Paul's time, when he's writing to Galatia, the people in Jerusalem who are now in bondage, the Jewish people, are the people of the bondwoman. But the Jerusalem above is free, which comes from God, which the mother of us all, for is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise, not of the law. We're not children of the law, which equals bondage. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Remember, one of the whole reasons that Ishmael was kicked out, and Hagar was kicked out, because they were persecuting, they were causing problems for Isaac, even as a little boy. And now we're, they're experiencing the same thing. The people who are children of Hagar, I mean, not literally, but figuratively, because they're in bondage to the law of Mount Sinai, now they're persecuting those who want to live according to the law of faith. Nevertheless, verse 30, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free ones. Number 13 on your list here. Number 13. People who preach this gospel, they shall be cast out. They are not fellow heirs. They are not fellow heirs. They shall be cast out. Because they're trying to be saved by keeping the law of Moses. And keep in mind, we're not talking about physical perfection, I don't think. We're talking about just, uh, not perfection, physical persecution, I don't think. We're talking about just verbal persecution. The same persecution Isaac endured from his older half-brother Ishmael. Okay? Verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, people would have you believe that that means uh, don't try to obey God. That's bondage. Liberty is you can sin all you want, you're still saved. But what does the Bible say about that? You could just read John 8 and Romans 6 to know that's not true. So, but by submitting to this gospel, you're forsaking your liberty and you're being entangled again in a yoke of bondage. Verse 2 of chapter 5. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Number 14 on your list. If you obey this gospel, Christ will profit you nothing. Because Christ is the only one who completely obeyed the law. He's the only one who completely fulfilled the law, and he's the only one who can free us from the curse of the law, as we saw earlier in Galatians, by becoming a curse for us, even though he didn't deserve it. So if you become circumcised, Christ will profit us. So you, it's not that Paul is saying that if anyone ever, like if, if we have a, if you have a son, and the eighth day you decide to get him circumcised by a doctor or a midwife, it's not as if that guy, that, that son is now barred from eternal life ever. It's not what it's saying. It's saying that those who are doing it under compulsion, as if they have to do it to be saved, like Acts 15 talks about, then Christ profits you nothing. Yeah, Titus, Titus would, if Titus would have done it under the compulsion of the people, and he was doing it for salvation, then he's, Christ profits him nothing. As if cutting off a little piece of flesh is going to save you. What a bunch of nonsense. Uh, verse 3. 
And I testify again to everyone who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Number 15 on your list. If you submit to this gospel, you must keep all of the law of Moses. Not just some of it. All of it. You know what part of the problem with that is? Christ was the final sacrifice for sins. So now how are you going to keep all of it now? Now this goes back to Hebrews 10. Remember Hebrews 10 we talked about this? There's no longer a sacrifice for sin because they were going back to the old Jewish system. Because those sacrifices can't take away sins. But you gotta keep all, if you're gonna keep part of the law of Moses to be saved, you must keep all of it. Now you have liberty. Once again, if you want to, you know, eat certain things that it says not to eat there, and I, I think, it doesn't say it, but I think practically speaking, some of the things that are on there are probably for our benefit health-wise. Okay? We probably shouldn't eat bacon all the time. We probably shouldn't eat shellfish all the time. Okay? It's for our benefit. But it's not, nothing to do with salvation or sin or not sin. Okay? Uh, at the middle of verse uh, 4, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Okay, verse uh, number 16 on your list there. Oh, you know, I don't think I read the first part of verse 4. Okay, you have been come estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So number 16 on your list, by obeying this gospel, which is no gospel at all, you become estranged from Christ, separated from him, you're no longer in fellowship with him. And you have fallen from grace. But wait a minute now. What if if obedience isn't required, what, what could make you fall from grace? So these people who say what this what Paul's talking about in Galatians all this time is that if you say you must obey God, then you're preaching of the gospel. Well, if, if that's wrong and that's a sin to say that, then why does that sin make you fall from grace if sin doesn't make you fall from grace? How does that make any sense? But you can fall from grace. And this is one of the things that does make you fall from grace. And Paul has very strong words for us, you see throughout your list. Verse 5, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Let me read that again. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Ah, faith working through love. That's obedience there. Yeah, if you love, if you, if you love God, go keep his commandments. If you love your neighbor, you'll love him as you love yourself. You'll tell him the truth. You'll tell him the gospel. Uh, verse 7, you ran well. Past tense. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him. Number 17 on your list. This persuasion does not come from him. If someone tries to persuade you to keep the law of Moses to be saved, you can be assured it does not come from God. It does not come from Christ. Who does it come from then? Yeah. It does not come from God or Christ. We don't want anything that doesn't come from him. Verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Number 18 on your list. This gospel is called leaven. Now, we don't want leaven in our midst. Even they would have understood that, these Jewish people who were saying, when Paul said it's a little leaven, they would have understood that by knowing the Passover and getting all leaven out of your house. They would have known that. Which is symbolic of repentance, by the way. Verse 10. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment Whoever he is. 
Number 19, people who preach this gospel will be judged by God. Be judged by God. Verse 11, I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Who? From who? From the children of the bondwoman. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off, would even mutilate themselves. Paul is saying, forget about circumcision. If that little piece of flesh saves you, then cut it all off. That's what he's saying. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. So he said liberty several times now, and he's talking about being free from having to obey the law. But now he's going to clarify. He doesn't mean liberty in his other areas now. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, verse 13. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds like obedience to me. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication. Now I want you to see here in verses 19, 20, and 21, how Paul is going to separate obedience to the moral law of God to obedience to Moses' law. Okay? Because he gives a list of things here in verses 19, 20, and 21. And then in verse 21 he says this. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, wait a minute, Paul. I thought a little while ago you said that we're not saved by the law, but by faith, and then we become heirs of God through faith. See, he's not contrasting obedience to the moral law of God and faith. Those things go together. They're not separated. They go together. But the fruit of the Spirit is getting circumcised and keeping, you know, not eating shellfish and not eating, that's not what it says. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against us there is no law. That's what it says. Verse 24, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and his passions with his passions and desires. So if you are Christ, those things they talked about in verses 19 through 20, uh, 21, those things have been crucified. They've been killed. They've been dead. You, they've been destroyed, as Paul said earlier. All the past lives have been destroyed. If you live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoke one another, envying one another. Let's go down to verse 11 of chapter 6. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. And I'm assuming here that he's talking about writing all of Galatians, because most books he only writes the, the end of it. Okay, the very end of it. Uh, but it could it could also mean that he's writing in large letters they can't see very good. But he, he usually did not write all the whole letter. This is the only one I know of that I could assume that he actually wrote the whole thing. Verse 12, And as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that it may boast in your flesh. Number 20, the last one on your list here. The people who preach this message are doing it because they don't want to suffer for the cross of Christ. And because they want to make a good showing in the flesh. Well, have you been circumcised, brother? Yeah. Oh, great, you've been circumcised. That's a good showing in the flesh. That's what he's talking about here. 
And these people who he's talking about are Jews by lineage. And if they start saying to their fellow Jewish brothers, listen, you can be saved, but you don't have to be circumcised. They're going to suffer persecution for that. That's one of the reasons Paul's saying that they won't submit to the truth. Verse 15, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all has become new. We know from 1 Corinthians seven nineteen that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Paul separates it every time. Separates it. Circumcision is over here. Keeping the commandments of God is over here. You've got to do this. You don't have to do this. The separation that Paul continually makes throughout his epistles. Verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, the rule he just said in verse 15, that circumcision and uncircumcision avail nothing but a new creation. As many as walk according to that rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Who is the Israel of God? Those who walk according to the faith of Abraham. Not those who are of Israel, Jacob's lineage, but those who walk according to the faith of Abraham. Now, I know this is taking a while, so I'm not going to go through some other uh, verses here that I was planning to go through, but I want you to write these down for your own edification later on. Uh, Ephesians 2.11, going all the way through Ephesians 3 and verse 12. Okay, and then also Ephesians 4.17 through Ephesians 4.24. And you can see Paul talks about the same issues in these epistles as he does in the epistle we just looked at. In Philippians 3.1 through 11. I encourage you to read that. Yeah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 in Philippians. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Through chapter 3 and verse 25. Paul is constantly dealing with this issue all throughout because he was the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He was dealing with these people over and over and over again. It was like his thorn in the flesh, so to speak. <laughs> Just like in America, our, our, our kind of thorn in the flesh is, is sinning Christians. We think it's okay to be a sinner and, and be a Christian at the same time. Not possible. Okay, one more. We're going to go to James and talk about this for a little bit here, and then we'll be done. James chapter 2. We'll start in verse 8. Now James, remember, in Acts 15, he is the James that is found there. He's the same James that agreed with the Apostle Paul that his his gospel was correct. There was nothing wrong with him. They brought no correction, um, no punishment, whatever you want. No, no, nothing to change his message. Nothing to add to his gospel. And he agreed that the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses to be saved. This is the James we're talking about here. So James is going to use this word works, but I'm asserting to you he's using it in a very different way than Paul uses it. And you'll see that for yourself. And when he's talking about works here, he's going to mention nothing about the law of Moses, being circumcised, eating a certain food, dressing a certain way, nothing, none, none of that. So James chapter 2 and verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Now, is that, would that qualify as the law of Moses or the moral law? Moral law, that's right. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. If you want to look partial, I was talking about going to the beginning of James chapter 2. 
But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble at one point, is, he is guilty of all. Now, is that talking about the law of Moses? Let's, let's see. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, those laws are found in the law of Moses, but were those laws around before the law of Moses? They sure were. Okay? Uh, verse 12. So, speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Wait a minute now, we're not judged by the law of Moses? No, we're judged by the law of liberty. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, all the laws filled in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 13. For judgment is without mercy the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is a prophet, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can faith save him? No. That's the answer, James. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, deep warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the, for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself it does not have works in this. We should make a comparison here. You say to one of your brothers, he's, you know, Josh doesn't have any food, doesn't have any clothing. They say, hey, Josh, how's it going, Josh? Be warm and well fed, man. See you later. Does that profit him at all? Did my words even give him any kind of encouragement at all? And so it is with someone who says they have faith, but has no works. That's what it's like. What it was like for Josh in that moment in time. When I see him with no food, no clothing, still hungry, still cold, whatever it may be. It's the same way with someone who has says they have faith, but has no works. Same thing. That's what Peter, that's James is saying here. Verse 18, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead, useless, of no use to God? You know, demons, they, they know about God, about the one God existing, and they believe it, but they haven't repented. And they don't tremble before God, they will one day. But they don't tremble right now as we speak because they're living the way they want to live. That's the same way as with sinners. Even those who say they have faith in one God, which is well to do, and they don't tremble before God. Same thing. Their faith is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? So wait a minute now. Abraham was justified by works. I thought the Apostle Paul said Abraham was justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see the problem we're having here? Not, not really a problem for us, but a problem for some people. He's using a different definition of the word works here. I'm going to tell you this. At the moment of faith, if that isn't the moment of your starting of obeying God, then you have not been saved. Because you have to forsake all known sin and trust completely in Christ to even begin to be saved. And then you must obey Him from there on out. Otherwise, you're failing in your probationary period and you end up losing your final salvation when you die. You'll end up in hell. So Abraham was justified by works. Now let's let's see how he explains this. When he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Now, did God tell him to do that? To offer Isaac on the altar? Yes, he did. And so what was that an act of? Of obedience. Right? Works. 
obeying God, what God told him to do. Of course, this is long before the law of Moses. Do you see, verse 22, do you see it that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. So when you say you have faith, and then you begin to obey God every single day of your life, it shows your faith is true, your faith is alive, it's not counterfeit, it's genuine. And your faith has been made perfect because you prove you don't have a dead faith. You prove you don't have a dead faith. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now let's go to James 4 and verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Who therefore wants to be a friend of the world and makes himself an enemy of God? Now wait a minute. If you have to obey God to not be his enemy... Then of course, right here, when it says Abraham was called the friend of God, it was showing that because he obeyed God. He obeyed God. Verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. The only time you'll ever see in the Bible, faith only, because people will say you're justified by faith only, is right here in this verse. And it says exactly the opposite of what they say it says. You see that a man is justified by works. And not by faith only. Because if your faith is alone, and you have no works, you have not been justified. If your faith is alone, you have no works. And I'm not just simply talking about external works, I'm talking about the internal work. That God has cleansed your heart and cleansed your mind, and you're now set at obeying Him no matter what it is. Because let's face it, if someone, I mean I know this thing doesn't, some people put too much stock in this I think. I know it probably doesn't happen very often, but if someone's on their deathbed, and they really trust in Christ... They may not have the opportunity to get baptized or do these external works. But I'll tell you what, the work within them, that they're ceasing from sin, that they have a pure heart and a pure mind and pure thoughts, that is works, friends, in God's eyes. That is works in God. I might not see it, you may not see it, but God sees it. And that's what matters. The right hand might not know about it, but the left hand does. God knows about it. And so we see here that he was justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Now, obviously Rahab is not being said that she continued to be a harlot. It's just calling her that because that's what she was known as before she allowed the men to stay with her and protected them. Okay? So she received the messengers and sent them out another way. She proved her faith in the one true God of Israel by allowing the messenger to come in and send them out and not siding with the people of her city. Verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. When you see a, you go to a funeral, which I went to recently, and you see a body there in the, in, sitting in the, in the uh, casket. That's what a person is like when they say they're a Christian, but they have no works. Just as dead as that body is. You know, people might go up to that dead body and talk to it as if they can hear it. I've seen it at many funerals. They give their last respect to this empty corpse, which I refuse to do when I go to a funeral. I'm not going to talk to a dead corpse. But just like a person says they're a Christian, but they have no works. That's just the way they are. So you can see here, if I look going through Galatians and James... 
The Apostle Paul has some really, I mean, you see on your list there, he has some strong things to say about people who are preaching this gospel. It's very serious. It's not just a side issue or a sidebar issue. They're accursed. They're estranged from Christ. They have fallen from grace. And if we know someone who's involved in these things, I think we have some kind of obligation to talk to them about it. Okay? And so we see in James, he uses works in a different way. And we see by the passages themselves, as we go through, I mean, I've read through Galatians probably 20 times in the last month or so. Just reading it through over and over again. Just getting it in my mind. And I'll tell you, it really solidified in my head. Because I already had this idea in my mind. I, I, I kind of said, well, you know what? I, I really think Paul's talking about the law of Moses here. But I read it through over and over and over and over again. It just solidified in my mind. That's exactly what, what he's saying here. And we see it when we combine it with James that the whole counsel of God becomes very clear. Okay, a couple of clarifications. One, if someone says you have to be obedient to God for a certain amount of time before he justifies you, even though the Bible never describes work salvation as that, I would think that would be work salvation as well. It's the moment of obedience, the moment of faith, that's when you become accursed. That's when you become sanctified by faith. It's the moment of that. And of course, there are people who think just by doing religious things or doing good things that they're okay with God. They may have the wrong motives. That, I think, would also qualify as work salvation. But when the Apostle Paul is talking about work salvation, he's talking about obeying the law of Moses, specifically being circumcised, to be saved. And when James is talking about uh, justified by works, he's talking about something completely different. Okay, so hopefully these last two sessions on a work salvation have made this clear to you, abundantly clear. That when someone tries to accuse you because you're telling them they must obey of work salvation, you can show them, listen, this is simply not true. Show, here's one that you can say to them, show me that in the Bible. Show me where the Bible says obedience to God is work salvation. I want to see it. Because it's not there, friends. In fact, we see in Galatians, we saw, you can look in Ephesians too, all these epistles that went through with, with the Apostle Paul, where he talks about these things, he also talks about obeying the law of God. Is a Paul a walking contradiction now? Of course not. Okay, so hopefully it was made clear to you and you can see for yourself. And I would encourage you, those scriptures I gave you in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, read through those and you'll see the same exact thing being said over and over again. But Paul just talks about it a lot in Romans and Galatians, especially Galatians, for good reason, because there's problems there. Okay, we'll open up the floor to uh, questions, objections, or... Oh, John? Uh, yeah, could you go through point 12 and 17 again? I, I sure. Okay, point 12. If you obey this gospel, you are foolish... And you're bewitched. That's point 12. If you obey this gospel, you are foolish and bewitched. And bewitched means you've had an, you have, you've had an evil influence exerted on you. I mean, we don't use the word bewitched very often in our modern, you know, everyday, that's why I defined it for you according to the, the Greek word which it comes from, baskino, uh, to exert an evil influence. The people who are preaching this gospel to them were exerting an evil, not a good influence, but an evil influence over them. Okay? That was 12. Uh, Genesis, I mean, Genesis, Galatians 3.1. And then number 20, you said? 
17, okay. Uh, 17 is from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 8. And the people who are trying to persuade them of this, that persuasion does not come from God. That persuasion that they were using to try to persuade the churches in Galatia to obey the law of Moses and be circumcised to be saved was not from God. Anybody else? Bershon. Add a couple things. Uh, one, uh, just to prove what you're saying, I've dealt with plenty of people. There are people out there who are doing it, especially online. Mm-hmm. I'm actually a big upset uh, city. I'm going to have all of those. Yep. In Galatians, I mean, as you can see, we went through the whole epistle. It's very, very fluid thought. I mean, it's not like he just, okay, here's one, here's one, here's one. It's a very fluid thing. I mean, he's, he's talking about the same thing all throughout and proving in different ways. So you really, I mean, with Paul, as I said many times, you have to read through the whole thing to get what he's saying. You really do. Point number 13 uh, is uh, Galatians 4, verses 28 through 30. <clears throat> yep. Question. Yeah, but Kevin. Um, in in uh, chapter Galatians 3, mm-hmm. uh, 23 and 24. Right. Uh, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And um, this uh, this law here is saying we and our and us and Jews. Jews. Right. So the, the law that he's talking about here would be the law of Moses. That's right. But the, the, and then it says that uh, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Right. That we might be just, talking about Jews there. Right. So, um, I mean, I know Ray Comfort uses it in a different that's, way, that's what I was but get that's at. not what it's talking about there. That, that was my question right. because it's been used as yeah. the Ten Commandments. Yeah, I, I've, I've known that for quite some time now, and that's why when I when I take someone through the law, I'll take them through First Corinthians six, nine, and ten. Instead of taking through the Ten Commandments, which causes a kind of problem, because let's face it, we're not required as Christians to obey the Fourth Commandment. And the Fourth Commandment is not, does not mean do you go to church on Sundays. It means do you keep the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And so I never go through the Ten Commandments, even though none of them are still applicable to us. You know, but it's not what he's talking about there. I mean, I don't think, I don't think, um, Ray is using that verse properly. Right. The, the Gentiles were never under the tutor, the law, yeah. under that guard. So it couldn't be used that way. That's right. Although there's nothing, you know, I've, I, we've, you probably used to take a nap. Sure, I, there's I, nothing I, wrong with that, but it just it can cause problems. Yeah. I, I don't go to the Old Testament to try to 
you know, witness to somebody about these things. I, I go to the New I mean, you can go to Revelation 21.8 or Revelation 22.15. You know, these different verses, even Galatians 5.21.23, we saw it today. I mean, you can go through these to show them these are things you shouldn't be doing, and this is what God's going to judge you by. God's not going to judge you about whether you keep the Sabbath or not. Right. You know, and if you're and if you're not if you're not a believer, God's not expecting you to go to church on Sunday. Right. So that fourth command wouldn't apply to them. And the only way I, I suppose that I have tried to go around that is to keep the Sabbath in Christ. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sure. That's not what it's that's not what the fourth commandment is saying, but I, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I've tried to find ways around it too. But when I came to the conclusion that Galatians three twenty four is not talking about that many years ago, I just I stopped doing that. And some of my witnessing videos, you'll see, I'll just take them through First Corinthians six, nine, and ten. Yeah. Take them straight through that. I mean, there's plenty there. Yeah. That I mean, and if you want to, I mean, usually the first one, that's Revelation twenty one eight is found in there. Yeah. Twenty two fifteen is found in there, so you don't have to go to, you and know, the, that, those that are not in the Ten Commandments specifically. Right. They're, they're there. That's Matthew five twenty eight. That's why I said that there's the law that was there before mm-hmm. the law of Moses. Which those people are accountable for. You see that in First Corinthians six and Revelation twenty one. Those are things that were before the law of Moses. As right, well. right. Yeah. Well, before. well before. Sure. You can kind of you can solidify what his point is more when you point out to what he's right now our culture, our society, and our laws of society. You know, our society knows we're all through lies. You can get lying to authorities. Right? Yeah. The law of liberty, which James talks about, you'll be judged by, which is fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself. Obviously, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to be lying to them. You're not going to be committing adultery with their, their wife or husband. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you about uh, the Mosaic uh, law, of course, we agree um, uh, about that issue of being put aside in regards to Paul's uh, to the believers. But uh, in Matthew 5, That's a good question. But it does say that I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill. And he did fulfill them. And it says, not one jar will, will by no means pass away until the law is to all is fulfilled. Right. So if he fulfilled it, it's been passed away. So if, if it is talking about the the law of Moses, what I think it is talking about there, I mean, I have to study a little more. And I realize people who hold this position, you must keep the law of Moses to be saved, they're always quoting these three verses. As if that dismantles everything the Apostle Paul says. And so, so he did fulfill all things. And so I, I would assert that it, that it has passed away. Brother Tracy, you want something to add to that? Yeah, I wanted just to uh, solidify that that is talking about the law of Moses. Okay, good. And the reason why it is, is that jot and tittle. Right, it's Hebrew. That's the goad and the tagging. That's specifically talking about the Torah. Uh, the 
tag is that little thing at the top of the, the seven characters. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's what that's talking about. That's a tittle. And then the, the jot is the yod. Yod, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that's what that is. So that's definitely talking about the, the law of Moses. Like you rightly say, until uh, all it's fulfilled, it was fulfilled. Jesus said it was finished on the cross. Yeah. That's what he's referring to as the law of Moses was finished mm -hmm. at, at that point. And in Galatians, we went through today, We it kind of talked about this. It said, uh, let's see here. No, I'm not finding it. If I had my little Bible, I'd find it. Have my so new Bible. Any idea why why the law is capitalized in one place is not capitalized in the other? Well, that's. I mean, there's no capitalization in the, in the Greek. I mean. They have all capitals and the ones that have all lowercase. They, they don't make any distinction like that. The translator's making, not the Greek manuscripts making. Yeah. So that's the that's whoever translated the Bible is doing that, right. not the Greek. How does uh, going back to what you were saying, brother? How does Torah the Ten Commandments Mosaic Law? Well, that's what the Torah is. The Torah is the six hundred thirteen laws that includes the Ten Commandments. Okay, so the law is not just the Ten Commandments. No, 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 this Ten Commandments is a very small part of it. And, and that's, I mean, and you see when James and in, in Paul, they're mentioning things that you should not be doing as a Christian that are even from the Ten Commandments. So when I talk about, like in the open air, I'm sure you heard me hundreds of times, brother, by now, when, if something is repeated in the New Testament, we are required to obey it. And that's what God's going to judge us by. Um, but he, even, you know, if we were to go back to the Gospels again, even according to, I mean, Jesus never talks about getting circumcised to be, to be saved. He never talks about those kind of things. And in Sermon on the Mount, he never talks about, um, uh, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, it's all moral law stuff there. There's nothing there of the law of Moses there. So, I mean, I, I think like, like, like what uh, Brother Tracy is saying, Matthew 5, 17, 19 is talking about the law of Moses, but it has been fulfilled. Right. So there's no problem there. At that point that he said it, though, it wasn't fulfilled. Right, of course. Right, and and people will go. People who believe Matthew five seventeen nineteen is talking about something different, or say it's not fulfilled, or maybe they'll twist the word fulfilled means think it means something else. That um, they'll even go as far as call the apostle Paul a false prophet, and dismiss all of his writings, and throw them out the window, even though Peter, John, and James, the half brothers, they all agreed with the apostle Paul. So if you're going to throw out his stuff, you got to throw out First Peter, Second Peter, John, First, Second, and Third John. You got to throw out James. They all agreed with him at the Council in Jerusalem. So they're questioning their judgment, and they're and they're really, I mean, really the whole. I mean, we're putting this in a natural perspective. This is this is God's word here. So they're really judging God's word and saying that shouldn't be in there. That's the same kind of thing that you know, like Martin Luther, you probably. With what he thought, I'm aware of, had the interpretation of Galatians that he.
embracing all sorts of Gnostic scriptures mm. to say Paul is against the law and Paul is against the law. Right. And, huh. and I, I, I know also to add to this, uh, <laughs> Hebrews 7, 8, 9 right. really kind of shows that as far as the law being fulfilled and the, and the new covenant shadows the, the old passing away right um, and it required the death of the testator and that was written to Hebrew people. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it was written by Paul. I think Hebrews was too. So, I mean, over and over again, Paul is dealing with an issue mostly to Gentile people throughout most of the epistles. But through Hebrews, he's dealing with the, the Hebrew people about this issue. No, no, I'm not saying, I'm saying that's who he's writing to. I'm not, I mean, obviously, God requires the same thing of Jewish people that he requires of Gentile people. I'm just saying his audience... His main audience for that, for that epistle was the Hebrew people. Now we can read it now and apply it to ourselves as well. But it's something specific to them. They were considering going back to the old law. Something they were at at one point in time. I'd never been there. So I'm not going to go back to it. I have to go to it for the first time. And so Hebrews is talking to them mostly. Yes. Not top of my head. No, I, I mean I can look into it. I mean, sure, so could you, but uh, I don't, not top of my head. No, no. Tracy, so I had uh, a really good way to, to look at this whole thing is when you look at the law of Moses, you're really talking about the old covenant, mm-hmm. and when you're looking at uh, the law of liberty we have in Christ, that's the new covenant. And when you look at the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, the crucifixion was the Sabbath of the Old Covenant. That was the completion, perfection of the Old Covenant. Now it's done away with. It's done. Uh And then the the New Covenant is perfected, completed at the Second Coming. The eternal Sabbath. Mm -hmm. So there's a Sabbath of the Old Covenant, which is the crucifixion. And there's a Sabbath that we look forward to, which is the Second Coming. That's a good way to kind of yeah. keep it in your mind. I'll tell you, friends, getting Galatians right, I mean, if, if you have to get one book right, that's very important, it's Galatians. Because people, I've seen people who I consider brothers in Christ go to antinomianism through Galatians. And I've seen others go to the Old Covenant through Galatians. Or not through Galatians, but I mean, not understanding Galatians properly. They go to the Old Covenant. And so people who I consider to be brothers in Christ are open-air preachers, they were preaching holiness and obedience. I mean, this one guy wept over him when I found out about it. He became the, he became antinomian. I mean, we were in Daytona Beach, Florida. You remember that, John? It was you, me, and Jesse who were there, and this one guy we just heard about it, and I just wept over him because he was just a good preacher. And then he was trying to convince another open air preacher that same thing. And me and John were in a, a, a city where he was at that point in time preaching in South Carolina, and I spoke. We talked to him for hours, and I went through all of Galatians, almost similar to what I did this today. All of Galatians was showing him that it's not saying what this other antinomian who used to be a brother was telling him, and he he still didn't submit to it. At that point in time, I don't know if he has at this point in time or not. What happens with Paul's letters? It's some things that are hard to understand and. Unstable people twist their own destruction. And I, I, and I said all this on Facebook recently. I read through Galatians one morning recently, 
And I wasn't speed reading. I was just reading normal speed. I read through the whole thing in 20 minutes. There's really no excuse not to read Paul's letters like that. And and it's maybe half the size of Romans. And so Romans might take 40 to minutes to an hour. I mean, it doesn't cost you much to take them 45 minutes or an hour a day to read all through all through Romans in one sitting. It's worth it, friends. It's worth it. And so you'll be walking truth. You won't be deceived by the devil. All these false doctrines out there. Using our time wisely, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Talked about last week. But it seems that that Paul says uses this word law of faith. Mm-hmm. It really coincides with James. Right. He's talking about the law of liberty. Right. He's talking about faith being without works, the law of faith. Amen. And uh, when Paul's the obedience of faith, the obedience of faith, that's that's he was that's that's what it's the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ, the obedience of faith. Right. Right. So it seems that that would you that be how you would explain the law of faith there? Yeah, yeah. It, when it comes to when, all throughout Romans uh, two, three, and four, he he talks about law. There, he's talking about the law of Moses the whole time. And the, the problem the Jewish people were having is they were thinking they were special, uh, and had some kind of uh, you know get out of jail free card, so to speak, to to be okay with God uh, because they had the law because they're Abraham's offspring. And um, you know what the whole thing Paul has explained to them is that listen, you need to understand that Abraham, who is our father. Father of faith, he was justified by faith before the law of Moses was even around. And but like as, as I said today, and I said last week, there was a law Abraham was obeying. Paul is not excluding obedience from Abraham's faith. He would he would agree with James. Him and James were in agreement. They left the conference in agreement about the gospel and what what is required. And even act and actually things he said. He, Right. And it is faith, and they're not they're not contrary to each other. Right. And, 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 the law and faith that was before the law right. of Moses. Right. That Abraham obeyed. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And, and either one of these things, I really haven't sought uh, sought out to to. Um, prove that obedience and faith are the same, but it's obvious to me as we read through Galatians and Romans that it is the same. I mean, just Romans 2, he talks about how, uh, verse 25 for of Romans 2, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. If you are breaking the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, there's a moral law there, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he who is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so Paul makes a distinction even there concerning these issues. And in Romans, this book ended in 
first chapter and the 16th chapter, it mm-hmm. speaks of the obedience of faith. Yeah. If you read the first chapter and the 16th yeah. chapter, you'll have Paul speaks of the obedience of faith in the first chapter, the obedience of faith in the last chapter. Right. So he just took in the whole thing there. Yeah. And so he can book in all seven with six and eight, look <laughs> in the whole book with Romans 1 and 16. Now. Right. Amen. Okay. Anybody else? Oh, yeah, there was a... Uh, um, not showing no partiality, I think, in Galatians 2. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course, if he shows no partiality towards Jews and Gentiles, he shows no partiality between Calvinists and non-Calvinists, and just judges them according to their faith, right. according to their beliefs and understanding. According to their choices. Right. According to their choices. Be judged by your works. Your works. Not someone else's works. Not Adam's works. Not Jesus' works. By your own works. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, Brother Tracy? Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting that that verse follows uh, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> so it's really interesting because, you know, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, but we're not supposed to give them any preference or show any respect to them right. as far as following them rather than following God. Right. And a lot of people fall in that trap is they end up following men and giving respect on the men because of things they've done, if they've been in ministry for over 40 years, mm-hmm. they'll give respect to that. And ignore the true teaching of God's word, and that's what. That's sure. And God's been around longer than any preacher has. So if we're going to give respect to the uh, uh, to the longevity, then I guess God deserves the most respect of any man.